Alright, I'm coming to you live from the Cambridge Innovation Center in Philadelphia. Huh. That doesn't make any sense. No, no it doesn't. Brand new CIC for me. I've been to the one in Cambridge and the one in Boston. Now I'm at one that's 400 miles away. Wow, uh, you could do the full tour. Mm -hmm. Well, that would be hard. I'd have to go to Rotterdam and Miami and uh, a few other far afield places, but I could give it, I could give it a try. But that's exciting. So you're sleeping there or uh, what's the... Uh... Sleeping here, yep. Yeah. Uh, they don't let you reserve then... conference rooms past 10 p.m., so I usually go, uh, you know, in the bathroom and you kind of have okay. to like pull your legs up so they're not visible uh, to, the, to the cleaning staff. And then right. once they leave, you're set, you know, no one's around. More yeah, sort around. of night at the museum style. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's working for me so far. Uh, you know, maybe eventually living off of uh, Fig Newtons and, uh, you know, M&Ms is going to, you know, result in some adverse health effects. But for now, it's, it's just fine. Are the Fig Newtons and M&Ms free? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a pretty good deal. I know. But they're probably, to... they're regular M&Ms, right? They're, they're our only regular M&Ms here, which is a huge bummer, because in Cambridge they have peanut M&Ms, which was my primary oh. source of protein. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, yeah. I, I find it impossible to find dark chocolate M&Ms. Oh, they're, man, that very, would be exceptional. It's very hard to find them. Yeah. I do wonder if you can buy them, like, at the kind of industrial scale that, uh, that the CIC does. If, if you can, I, I might be investing for... <laughs> <laughs> for my apartment have you have you been listening to any abba recently oh boy i just this just crossed my twitter feed have not listened to the new album voyage by abba have you first for i i've listened to the two singles okay one's one's pretty good the other one's quite like very abba style like high energy the the mm -hmm. second single I'm, I'm a big fan of first album in 40 years incredible Absolutely i feel like i've it. been saying i've been saying the phrase like Oh, haven't done X in two years, like talking about like pre-COVID. And I feel like I can't imagine saying like, oh, haven't done this in 40 years. <laughs> I know. It's incredible. It looks like they were just totally on hiatus from 82 to 2017. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it I guess it was two couples that both got divorced like around the same time. Interesting. Okay. And they are all four back, all the, all the yeah. OGs. Wow. The original crew. So basically they got divorced and it took them 35 years to work through their shit. And now they're like, all right, <laughs> let's be adults about this. <laughs> we could have been making bank if we toured for this whole time. We all would have been billionaires. <sighs> Looks like they got together yeah. just in time for uh, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, which was released in 2018. I like to wow. believe that uh, that movie really brought them all back together. That might have caused it. <laughs> well, speaking of old people doing cool things, did you see this Brown physics student earning a PhD at age 89? No. Good for him. Yeah. He successfully defended his PhD dissertation on September 15th, but it was, I think, just in the news this past week or so. Corrections uh, to the geometrical interpretation of bosonization. Physics. All right. Now, the, the title kind of gives the impression, when I first clicked on it, and from my experience with PhD students, I kind of thought that he was working on this PhD the whole time, and he just <laughs> finally got it done. This was his uh, 180th attempt to defend his thesis. Yeah. Every time they were like, nope, you got to just try harder. Talk about, do more boson stuff. <laughs> but no, it turns out he actually just started it, you know, 
somewhat recently. He hasn't been working on this for 60 years. That is fascinating. It's interesting because getting a PhD, you know, it, it, it was his lifelong goal. I get that. But I just feel like it's really not most people's like, like goal in and of itself. It's always like, well, you got to do, do the PhD to like achieve your actual goal, like become a professor or whatever. Right, right. Uh, and the craziest thing, and but I would even understand that if it was like, okay, sure, but this guy struggled and ended up having to get, do some manual labor job or something because he needed the money, but he always wanted to get back into academia. Mm-hmm. But no, this guy already had a PhD. What? <laughs> and he was already a very highly regarded doctor. And he was the director of a program and everything. And he just retired from medicine in like in 2000. 21 years ago. Wow. His... And just s- still always liked physics. Yeah. Oh, man. This is wild. His first PhD he got from MIT in biochemistry in 1967. <laughs> <laughs> he was just like, you know, time for round two, you know, yeah. 45 years later. It's 55. Oh, my God. 55 years later. That is bonkers. Yeah. He was listening to ABBA albums during his first <laughs> PhD, and he could do it now. ABBA, I don't even know if they'd come out yet. If he was doing his PhD from 62 to 67, That's I don't tr- think so. ABBA, was, ABBA wasn't even, I don't even know if the members of ABBA were born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, formed in 72. So ABBA formed th- uh, wow. five years after he got his first PhD. Incredible. Well, uh, there's some hackery news uh for sure uh metaverse you know uh lots of metaverse stories floating across hn today uh three of them in particular the first one is uh the metaverse is bullshit uh the second one is the metaverse is already here it's minecraft and the third one is the metaverse is already here it's called the internet (laughs) so (laughs) you know i wouldn't say there's a ton of enthusiasm uh for the metaverse you know across uh, the, you know, hacker news population. But uh, some of these I thought were pretty interesting, different takes on what the metaverse is like, you know, really trying to do. I think the, the best one that I that I like the most is uh, the metaverse is already here. It's, uh, sorry, the metaverse is bullshit, which I thought was actually pretty measured despite the title. So this one probably got the, uh, the biggest, biggest coverage and the biggest splash. You know, talked about the history of the metaverse and it's basically like, <laughs> I don't know, basically saying, being inside of a three-dimensional, you know, VR world was was never really the important part. Like, basically saying it's going to be hard for any sort of VR-centric metaverse to be better than, like, having, like, a really good, like, desk and monitor instead of input devices. Uh, so it's a bit, it's ex- somewhat down on, you know, the future of uh, any sort of, like, audio-first interface uh you know for like more like, complicated tasks it's just like not going to be as precise as just like a decent mechanical keyboard is what the author claims uh it'll be good for maybe more creative stuff or you know but i think a lot of these are coming from the perspective of like how do i do my programming job my white collar job uh you yeah. know the metaverse and how will it compare to like having my computer and mechanical keyboard or what have you you know which is like the vr can only ever just asymptotically approach like the degree of uh, tactility that you get with just like good real physical uh objects that we can interact with in person 
and so it's uh, it was basically saying, yeah, I mean, this guy is just saying it. It's not uh, <laughs> the VR bit is not actually an important part of what uh, the metaverse like needs to be. I guess. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like because on the input, okay, that that makes sense in the second half. On the input story, I mean, I guess. That makes sense right now, but I, I feel like there's pretty cool research going on in the HCI community with like haptics. And I feel like I could imagine the haptics being like better because it's dynamic than like a keyboard for text input. So what what does that actually look like? Like, do you, you still have like a digital version of a keyboard? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't it, know. I, I was ju- just imagining like just haptics in general. It seems like there's like no. I guess nobody really knows what to do in the haptic space. But there's, I guess there was a recent uh, HCI conference where a lot of it was. There was a lot of haptics research, and there were some cool demos of things that you could put on your fingers that like change the perceived softness of various objects. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and a range of like glove-like things that that I don't know you could imagine, but. It's hard for me to imagine, but I might be a hater. It's hard for me to imagine that ever being better than a good keyboard. Uh, but, you know, then again, now now it all kind of makes sense. Like, this is why Apple's been playing the long game, where they uh, make their keyboards really bad, because <laughs> it'll drive people <laughs> towards whatever uh, whatever future stuff they have in store. You know? Whatever just a be. super quick aside, I just read a review of the new MacBook Pros that the conceit of the review was that the 2016 through 2020 laptops never happened. <laughs> and, and he just did a direct comparison as if the 2012 laptops had just come out last year and he was just comparing them to the 2012s. Oh my God. Great. That great is genius. premise. Yeah. So it was one. just like, yeah, you know, same old stuff, you know, same ports, nothing really novel there. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it the bag safe got a little smaller, things like that. <laughs> I didn't, closely read the metaverse already exists it's minecraft uh i've never been like wildly into minecraft um but that also seems like you know you could make that as a very compelling case since it already has massive usership and kind of like has demonstrated its own staying power and so it makes sense as a kind of a substrate for you know the metaverse to be built uh on top of uh i do wonder if anyone well i'm sure they are but you know what what are the efforts that the metaverse, the organization that runs Minecraft, what are the steps they're making towards trying to introduce, you know, NFTs or like more of an economy or whatever the things are that people or, you know, maybe like, <laughs> I hate to say it, but some sort of like work, work focused, you know, <laughs> VR Minecraft mode. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's on anyone's radar. But wow, it, I really I if I could do all of my programming in in Minecraft. I think I'm in for that world. <laughs> Minecraft for work. <laughs> oh god. All right. Now that I've said it out loud, I feel dirty and it should it should never happen. Uh but it would you know, I do uh there doesn't seem to be much transparency into what Minecraft is is trying to to do in that regard. At least I haven't heard about it, so I'd be curious to uh to see some some breakdowns about that. Yeah, that's interesting. I also like the idea of just my full knowledge of what people think the metaverse is just coming from like these single sentence headlines of various metaverse articles. (laughs) 
Okay, there is a great video that came out three days ago, but it's originally from 2010, which is an internal Google video called, I just want to serve five terabytes. And it's a three minute video that was created with generated voice generation and animation generation scripts from like 2010. It's basically one character wanting to very easily serve five terabytes and the other character saying, Oh, five terabytes for Google. That's nothing. You can, you can just do that easily. I don't even, I forgot how to count that low. Just follow these steps. And then the steps are like going through all of the tech layer bureaucracies of Google in 2010 of like creating tickets and knowing which zones they're in and all of this stuff. And it's just, <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Fantastic. It's interesting. There are linked articles in the description of this video that uh, are from Rachel by the Bay, who is kind of a Hacker News, you know, regular uh, articles of hers. She's like a, you know, a sysadmin kind of uh, uh, person who, who blogs a lot. And some of these articles on here, uh, there's one that was just posted, you know, a few days ago. But the original one that is linked from this, uh, this YouTube video is from 2012. So uh, she's been around uh, for quite a bit longer than I'd realized. Wow. It looks like it's kind of just like a re a repost of this video from 2012, but uh, good for her. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. So let me just to make sure I understand this. It's about it being hard to serve five five terabytes on Google, like on Google Cloud. <laughs> Did that exist in 2012? Uh, the the character doesn't really specify who is receiving the five terabytes, <laughs> but I think. I think the main point is that, like, for Google scale, five terabytes is nothing. But it is hard. It's hard because of how much, like, internal tooling there is that, like, a, an engineer has to deal with. Gotcha. And I think what makes it so funny is, like, I have to deal with a, not the same kinds of things, but similar things with just dealing with, like, such a large engineering organization mm -hmm. that it's like, oh, this thing comparatively should be trivial but it's so hard to actually get done <laughs> and apparently they people in the comments were saying that they actually changed like this video got so much attention internally to google that they actually changed a lot of internal processes to try to make like internal development easier at google after this video fascinating which gives me that. some ideas actually <laughs> posting anonymous videos as kind of an open letter to uh, get changes made in, in your organization. Uh, yeah, that's, that's one way to do it for sure. That's, that's one way to do it. <laughs> Though now hopefully no one listens to this because when the, uh, the Apple equivalent of this eventually gets inevitably leaked, uh, you know, people are going to track you down. Be ready. Don't worry, nobody listens to this. <laughs> Got a couple S1s. I didn't read them. Oh, I haven't been, I have not been tracking these. What's, uh, what's coming out these days? <laughs> uh, hot new goss in the S1 world is uh, Backblaze and HashiCorp. Uh, it's just kind of these like real infrastructural, you know, cloud computing uh, platforms that uh, I honestly don't know too terribly much about any of them. Is, is Black, uh, Backblaze the company that does the, you know, hard drive uh, review articles every six months? Yes. Yep, okay. they do the hard drive review articles, and I am a user of Backblaze for quite a while as for my cloud backup Mac Mac backup. Yeah, it's uh, there are a few 
of these like cloud services to back up your whole computer that work on Mac, but Backblaze has the best like UI. I think it was actually started from like a bunch of ex Apple engineers, so it like works very nicely on the Mac. Cool. So you actually do cloud backups now in addition to like local hard drive backups? Yes. Yes. And, okay, you've been doing that for some time, I take it. Yes, for mm-hmm. many, many years. Interesting. I've uh, never actually considered doing a cloud backup for my Mac. Maybe I should. Yeah, what if uh, your Mac and local external hard drive get stolen? Uh, It'd be bad. Uh, And also, my last local backup hard drive I'm seeing here happened uh, 128 days ago. So yeah, it'd be really bad. Oh no. Even if just my uh, Mac got stolen. So maybe, maybe I'll look into this. I don't know. Definitely think about it. There's a uh, three, two, one, the three, two, one rule of backups, which I try to follow, which is to have three copies of all of your data in at least two different types of storage media with at least one copy offsite. So if you do a, one of these services plus a local external hard drive, then you've, then you're following the rule. Okay, so that's the. Hmm. What are the? What do you mean? Two different types of storage media? Uh, I don't know. I was just. <laughs> I was reading that because I had to remind myself what the three, two, one rule is, and like that's what it says: hard drive and uh, flash memory, or <laughs> whatever you're. Yeah, uh, this says like examples are like local drive, a network share. Mm. Uh, there's probably a. Let's see. Yeah, that's kind of weird. I actually, this might, this rule might have been thought of in the 80s <laughs> when you search three two one backup rule the number one result for me anyway is why three two one backup sucks on unitrends.com so it's you know they're losing the seo battle to uh, to yeah. the haters <laughs> yeah i guess the the two in the three two one rule is like have one of them on a hard disk and one of them on magnetic tape which doesn't really probably apply anymore so Maybe it's just the 3-1 rule now. Yeah, I don't think magnetic tape uh, yeah, probably does not apply, I would guess. Yeah. But uh, yeah, HashiCorp is really one of these companies that's like really gigantic that I, I don't really know why I never hear hear about it. Like if, if, you know, they have a bunch of services that run on top of AWS, so maybe I'm just too in the Google Cloud ecosystem. But they've got Terraform, which is some sort of like, you know, code-first infrastructure management thing, you know, kind of like a... You know, an alternative to Kubernetes, maybe. Uh, then, yeah, a bunch of other stuff. Packer for like packing up your custom kind of, uh, you know, container images, Docker images. Vault for managing like, you know, uh, you know your secrets or you know TLS uh, private keys or what have you. Uh, so I guess it's just kind of like lower level stuff that, for the most part, if you're using, if you're kind of on the happy path with most clouds, uh, or at least if you're a smaller company instead of a company that maybe tries to bring more of this lower level infrastructure uh, infrastructure in-house um you know you just don't really have to deal with it uh super often yeah that's interesting i i didn't know that these guys did terraform which i've used once for a project uh a while back but i couldn't i like sort of didn't get it or it didn't click with me so then i yeah gave up on it i think all the copy on their site is pretty marketing-y uh, you know, you just go to Terraform and it's automate infrastructure, provision, change, and version resources on any environment. And uh, it's just, it doesn't immediately, it's not immediately clear to me how this fits into my like kind of uh, 
very Google Cloud centric brain uh, of like what cloud services exist and how to how to build different things. Yeah, I think their their pitch would be like, do you ever have to go to Google Cloud and like adjust settings on the console of Google Cloud? Mm. Well, why isn't that just a config file that you're editing in text and then pushing, and then the the text file that the config file will make the change for you? Okay, gotcha. As you were saying that, I'm realizing that the thing that I had in mind, the kind of orchestration tool that competes with Kubernetes, is actually Nomad, uh, and it uses Terraform under the hood. So Terraform is just what you what you just described, kind of manages those changes uh, between different configuration files. Hmm. Interesting. But uh, yeah, good for them. It's the it's definitely IPO season. Yeah, that's exciting. I will have to go in and read the uh, risks section that's required in every S1, which is just <laughs> the most fun piece of, of uh, corporate finance reading you can do is check out risks on S1s. Uh, yeah, real-time lookup of the top risk factor. Uh, let's see, this is for Backblaze. Is... Uh, the, the classic S1 risk factor. We have a history of cumulative losses and we do not expect to be profitable for the foreseeable future. <laughs> so <laughs> just just your classics. You know? Incredible. I love it. <laughs> oh, incredible. It looks like that is not the number one risk factor for HashiCorp, so good for them. Ah, I see. It's the number two. <laughs> we have a history of net losses and may not be able to achieve or sustain profitability or positive positive cash flows in the future. It doesn't even say the foreseeable future. That is wonderful. Uh, entrepreneurship is uh, horrible. I hate it. Well, speaking of entrepreneurship, did you see the Zillow news recently? I did not. I was surprised to see Zillow cross in... Uh, across my radar on HN. It doesn't look like it's good news. It does not seem to be great news. So Zillow, the place to go post and look at homes that are being bought and sold, recently started doing a thing where they would actually also just buy the homes for you. And it was supposed to be like a algorithmic, like you just like press the button, Zillow gives you the estimate, and then you press like sell. And <laughs> Zillow has purchased your home like automatically. And then they, they sort of try to flip the home. Uh, and uh, turns out they lost a lot of money doing that. And so they have announced they're going to stop stop doing that. That's really disappointing because I, I do actually like the concept a lot. Like this is something that has always felt uh, like an interesting, very hard problem, which is, you know, just cruise around neighborhoods, see what's for sale, and then see the things where you could just get the highest ROI uh for the you know for the least amount of like resources spent it's kind of like our little our little uh small business consulting game where there's just like little things that that businesses could do to like dramatically improve their customer experience uh i think there's something comparable to that where like for a kind of minimum uh upfront investment you could dramatically increase the like the curb appeal of a lot of homes that just have like you know kind of external like highly visible issues and you could just, you know, put on like a facade that is, you know, uh, kind of more aligned with a more, you know, a modern like exterior design aesthetic or something. Uh, and right. I do, I, I wish it worked for them in a way um, because it, I, I just want like, I would like to know how this works. Uh, and apparently, unfortunately, uh, it doesn't at all. Yeah, it is kind of disappointing because also the like, the idea of like uh, realtors seems like shouldn't really be super necessary 
and kind of feels old fashioned. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's interesting that there's a there's another startup that did this as a like full time. This was like a side thing for Zillow because their main thing is like the postings about homes for sale. You're but thinking of uh, Open Door. I'm thinking of Open Door, which uh, it'll be interesting to see. Open Door, it seems like, is uh, Keith Raboy company who's mm. you know he's he's a person out there that exists yeah. you can you can follow his twitter for entertainment <laughs> i guess if you want <laughs> um but it'll be interesting to see if open door as focusing on this as their sole thing will be able to do what zillow seemed to not be able to do yeah that is wild and so the numbers on this this failure or as it i, I guess they're probably not losing too much money on the margin like i do wonder if if it just like if they lost money on this or if they just decided it wasn't really worth i don't know the amount of upfront capital they had to spend like maybe they kind of you know their their cash flows weren't where they needed them to be for this to be viable or something but they're selling i'm seeing here seven thousand homes for a cumulative 2.8 billion so uh you know they're gonna they're gonna have a lot of a lot of cash coming in I know this is being kind of touted as a as a failure, uh, because they're they're stopping on this effort. But uh, I don't know. Has it affected their uh, their stock price dramatically? Uh, I would say yes. I would say a dramatic change in their stock price. Okay. All right. Uh, in one day, it was down twenty five percent. Yeah, it looks like it's down from a peak of. Yeah. Okay. It's it's gone down about thirty to thirty three percent cumulatively from from the peak in. Uh, you know, two days before Halloween, <laughs> one week ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'd say, yeah, not, not great news. Last little bit of news is uh, Sam Altman making some investments in nuclear fusion. Helion. Did you read this? I haven't read it yet. What, uh, what's the deal? Uh, he's got a teeny little blog post here. Uh, I guess they are what he says is the most... Uh, the best thought out approach to economic nuclear fusion. Uh, I don't, they don't go into detail about the actual like designs there. Uh, but the TLDR is that they have a path to actually producing net electricity by 2024 and are aiming to eventually sell electricity for one cent per kilowatt hour. Uh, pretty cool. would like to see it happen. Wow. That is pretty crazy. So do they, so it's it's like actually working it is working i think this is oh wow okay so the total amount that they just raised is 2.2 billion which is uh pretty pretty hard to even wrap your head around the round was led by sam altman and looks like we got some musk dustin moskovitz action peter teal's in on this and uh capricorn investment group which some private equity firm probably uh that this is the thing about fusion where it feels like it's poorly understood I took a seminar on it uh, in school, so I'm kind of an expert, I would say. Uh, but it's always it's always been known that uh, like how to make energy positive nuclear fusion. Uh, it's a thing where the physics work out such that uh, smaller reactors, like physically smaller reactors, are harder uh, to produce. You know, net electric like more electricity than you put in. But it's always been known in the theory that if you make it bigger, then eventually you hit the tipping point and it does produce more than you put in. Uh, the problem being, it would just, uh, it, it's a 
impossibly large amount of, of upfront capital for a typical university lab that's, that's doing th this research uh, to build a sufficiently large one, uh, that w it would actually be net positive. So there's this perception that like, you know, yeah, there, no one's ever managed to make an uh, energy positive fusion reactor, but really like they are intentionally uh, building smaller ones that are basically, you know, basically cannot possibly produce electricity um, while doing the initial research required to build the big one. Uh, and now they're, they're, you know, there's a multi-year effort to build a, uh, the first, you know, energy positive reactor in Europe, uh, a big tokamak reactor. Can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always, uh, it's very possible and, you know, it, it's not like it's this, uh, this white whale that no one's managed to pull off. Wow. That is very interesting though. Mm -hmm. So, we'll so see it if sounds do like it. $2.2 .2 billion might, might help them out. It could, it could do. Yeah. I mean, it didn't work out for, you know, magic leap, but, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe Helion will, uh, buck the trend. So I guess it's okay to be mining Bitcoin now? Absolutely. We'll be fine. Don't even worry about it.